Hi, you're listening to the preaching and teaching ministry of Second Baptist Church. These resources are not designed to take the place of a local church, but we hope they will encourage you on your journey with Christ. For more information about how you can connect with the Second Family, visit mysecond.family. This sermon was delivered live at our West Conway campus. Thanks for listening. We are starting a new series today um, called Clarity in the Chaos. We're going to be looking together at the book of Genesis. And uh, how many of you maybe started a new Bible reading plan that started in Genesis for the new year? Just raise up your hand if you did that. That's good. Good job. If you didn't, that's fine. No shame. Um, but, but if you've been reading in Genesis, you know there's some crazy stuff in there, right? It gets chaotic. It gets pretty wild. Whenever sin entered into the world things broke in a drastic way, right? And so from the beginning, we see that there is chaos in our world. And you and I experience that every single day. But also what we see in this uh, text, uh, in the book of Genesis and in this series, what we'll see is God desires to bring clarity in the midst of the brokenness, in the midst of the chaos. And that's true for your lives as well. And so I'm praying that this series is one uh, that, that you experience the clarity that God wants to provide in your, in your life. If you have a Bible, open it with me to Genesis chapter six. Genesis chapter six. On November 25th, 2019, I, I remember that day specifically for two reasons. One, uh, it was my birthday, um, or it is my birthday every single year. November 25th is my, is my birthday. Uh, but in 2019, it, it was my birthday and it was very, very cold that day. Sometimes you get lucky in November and you get kind of a nice day. This one was freezing cold. And 2019 is the year that my family moved to Arkansas. And so I wanted to experience the natures uh, of Arkansas. And so I bought a kayak and I got, got really into going kayaking in that year. So on my birthday, um, Josh said, hey, let's take a day off work and let's go float the Cadron. Now, did I mention that it was freezing cold and that I was new to kayaking? So my biggest concern that day was, uh, I was I was just only afraid about my feet getting wet as I was getting in and out of the kayak. That was my biggest concern. And so my solution to that was I brought some Kroger sacks and I was just gonna like step in them, get in the kayak, and then I'd be good the rest of the time, all right? That just shows I was a rookie. And so we get all bundled up and we go, right? We weren't on the water for 10 minutes and I hit the biggest rock you've seen right underneath the water and my kayak just flips, I go into the water. And it was so cold. You know the kind of cold that just takes your breath away? Yeah, that's what I was experiencing. So I'm just like, I, I have no breath. I'm just tumbling along the big rocks underneath the cadron. I finally come up for air. And then I'm like trying to gather all my stuff because it's been scattered all over Arkansas at this point. It's floating down the Cadron River. I get over to the side, I stand on this rock. And I just remember thinking like, I hate this. This is not fun at all, and I'm selling this kayak as soon as we're done with this godforsaken day, right? And so it was rough, freezing cold, drenched, right? So we're floating, and it's a 10-mile float, so that's a long one. We're going to be out there a while, all right? Um, when all is said and done, I end up falling in three times that day. Uh, just about every time I would get air dry, you know, I would just jump back in 
for some more, you know, and get soaking wet. We were out there and it was about, I guess, mile five, about five hours into the float or something like that. I am, I've used up all of the dry clothes that I brought, all the extra dry clothes that I bought. Half of them went floating down the river. They're gone, never to be seen again. And I'm floating and I'm soaking wet in a wet t-shirt and wet shorts and it's freezing cold outside. And Josh, who hadn't fallen in at all at this point, looked at me and he had the, the nerve, the gall and the audacity to look at me and say, hey, is it still cold? I'm thinking about taking off these gloves and this sweatshirt, right? And I thought about drowning him right then and there. Um, but I just said, man, you and I are having totally different experiences today, you know. And it was then that I learned this truth about kayaking, that it's much better to be in the boat than out of it, right? And hang on to that phrase. We're going to come back to that in a little bit, but it is much better to be in the boat than out of it. So in Genesis chapter 6, we're going to start this series by looking at the story of Noah. And I know that you know that story, right? We've grown up with it as kids. Every little kid Bible, I was in a store just the other day, and every little kid Bible that was on the shelf, all of them had a picture of Noah's ark on the front, right? So we're very familiar. We know about Noah. He was a good guy. We know about the brokenness and the sinfulness of the world. We know about the ark and the animals and the flood. We know about this story, but we're going to be talking about Noah actually for, for now three weeks. It, the, the story goes from chapter six to chapter nine. So this is part one of three, if you will. And I just need you to know from the beginning uh, of this story of Noah, that Noah is not the point of the story. Noah is not the main character. In fact, he doesn't even get a speaking part, right? That's how you know you're not a main character. If you don't get a speaking part, you're not a main character. You don't actually even hear Noah say anything until chapter nine, when he gets drunk, passes out, and curses his grandson, okay? So the story is not about Noah, primarily. The story is about something bigger. And my goal this morning, whenever we come to a very familiar text, what you wanna do when you come to a familiar text is you wanna make it unfamiliar. You wanna make it difficult. And so that's my goal for us this morning. I wanna zoom out. Like think of Google and how you use Google Maps. I wanna zoom out to satellite view from the street view. I wanna zoom out to satellite view and I wanna zoom out away from all of the details that you're so familiar with. And I want us to see what the big picture is that's taking place in this story. And I think what we'll see is it's the big picture of all of scripture. So that's what we'll look at in Genesis chapter six. Before we do, I want us to pray and ask the Lord if he would speak to us this morning. So I'm gonna pray for all of us. And I want you to take just a second, pray for yourself. Ask the Lord if he would speak to you in this time. Let's all pray. God, we, we just wanna humble ourselves and come before you and say, as we are opening up your um, inspired and fallible word of God, Lord, would you do what only you can do and that's speak to our hearts. There's nothing that I have to say that's gonna do any good for anybody. But through your spirit and through your word, would you speak and would you change us and mold us more into the likeness of Jesus this morning? Help us to listen. We love you. It's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen. All right, Genesis chapter 6. We're going to pick up in verse 5. Genesis chapter 6, verse, verse 5. It says this. When the Lord saw that human wickedness was widespread on the earth and that every inclination of the human mind was nothing but evil, all the time, the Lord regretted that he had made man on earth, and he was deeply grieved. Then the Lord said, I will wipe mankind whom I created off the face of the earth, together with the animals, creatures that crawl, and birds of the sky, for I regret that I made them. Noah, however, 
found favor with the Lord. And these are the family records of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless among his contemporaries. Noah walked with God. And Noah fathered three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with wickedness. God saw how corrupt the earth was, for every creature had corrupted its way on the earth. Then God said to Noah, I've decided to put an end to every creature, for the earth is filled with wickedness because of them. Therefore, I'm going to destroy them along with the earth. In this very familiar story, if we're going to zoom out from all the details and and all of that, I think there's two big truths in this story that this story tells us, and I want to show them to you this morning. The first one is this. God hates sin. God hates sin. Verse 5 says that he saw the human wickedness was widespread on the earth, and every inclination of the human mind was nothing but evil all the time. It, it's, sin is, is running rampant at this point. Verse six says, the Lord regretted that he made man on the earth and he was deeply grieved. The question is, if you just jump in at chapter six, you're asking, what happened? Like, how did it get to this point? We're only six chapters in and already God's regretting even making mankind, right? So what happened? Well, you need to go back to the beginning to really understand it. In Genesis chapter one, God creates everything, right? You know the story, he spoke it and it existed. He said, let there be light and there was light. And he just created everything in that way. He takes this dark, watery chaos and he makes it into a beautiful garden just through his word. And he says seven times it's good. But he doesn't stop there. Then he makes mankind, he makes humans, man and woman. And when he does, he says, that's very good. And, and he makes them in his image, meaning this, that, that mankind, men and women, were created to reflect God's character into the world. That's why they were made, reflect the character of God into the world. But he also, at the same time, gave them moral choice on how they were going to do that, how they were going to reflect God's character into the world. And Adam and Eve choose to turn away. They choose to turn away from God's plan, and sin enters the world in Genesis chapter three, and really what you see from there is just a downward spiral of sin. It's a downward progression. Things go from bad to worse. By Genesis chapter four, we see that this family unit that God had created to reflect his goodness out into the world, now that family is killing each other. Cain and Abel, the the sons of Adam and Eve, Cain murders his brother Abel. By the end of chapter four, there's a guy named Lamech who really don't know a whole lot about him other than the fact that he's boasting about the fact that he is way worse than Cain is. That's what you see in the end of chapter four. And then chapter six opens with some confusing stuff, the first four verses of that. I'm not gonna try and explain that to you, but it's a strange, confusing scene. But I think what it does is it teaches us that sin had reached its climax. Like it's, it's, it's gotten to his deepest, darkest state. And apparently that was the final straw for God, right? Verse seven of chapter six, the Lord said, I will wipe mankind whom I created off the face of the earth together with the animals, creatures that crawl and birds of the sky for I regret that I made them. 
And you know the story. He decides to do exactly that, wipe off creation off the planet. He does it with the flood. And maybe you're thinking about the flood. Maybe you're thinking like, sheesh, that's, that's kind of harsh, right? That's kind of tough. But I think what it shows us is it shows us that God is serious about sin. In fact, I would say God hates sin. He's determined to destroy it. And, and you need to know, he has to destroy sin. He can't be God and be okay with sin. He's holy, he's perfect, he's righteous. This is how Isaiah the prophet describes seeing God. I, wanna, I want you just to see if you can picture this along with Isaiah as I read it to you. This is the description that he sees of God. Isaiah chapter six, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord seated on a high and lofty throne and the hem of his robe filled the temple. Seraphim or angels were standing around him they each had six wings, with two they covered their faces, with two they covered their feet, and with two they flew, and one called to another. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of armies. His glory fills the whole earth. The foundations of the doorways shook at the sound of their voices, and the temple was filled with smoke. And this is the response of Isaiah upon seeing the holiness of God. He says, woe is me, for I am ruined. I'm a man of unclean lips and I live amongst a people of unclean lips because my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of armies. You see it? It's a picture of the holiness of God. And so you need to understand that God can't be holy and just and be cool with your sin. He has to address it. He has to destroy it. And so this is a horrible scene. The flood is a horrible scene. It's terrible. Imagine the terror. Like, imagine as the floodwaters started to rise, all the people who were down there trying to gather loved ones and different things, like, this is a terrible scene. Chapter seven tells us that every creature died. They drowned. Every single one. It's a terrible, horrible scene. And we like to paint this on the walls of our nurseries, right? It's like, kids, look at the cute little animals, but just don't look in the water, you know? It's a terrible scene, it's horrible. But the flood illustrates to us the seriousness of sin, the horror of sin, and the result of sin, which is death. God hates sin. And if that's true, that God hates sin, I think it's worth us asking ourselves: do we hate sin? Do you hate the sin that creeps into your life? Or are you cool with just letting it grow and fester? As long as nobody else really finds out about it. Do you hate sin in this same kind of way? Are we serious about killing the sin that's in our lives, knowing that our God who's holy and just and perfect and righteous, the one who loves us and created us, he absolutely hates sin. You know the rest of the story. God tells Noah to build an ark. He tells him there's a flood coming and everything that's not on the ark is going to die. At the end of chapter six, he gives Noah instructions to bring his family on the boat and animals onto the boat as well. Chapter seven, they get into the boat. Chapter seven, verses 11 through 16, it starts to rain. And God shuts the door of the ark, protecting Noah, his family, and all those animals. Now I want you to read. Let's look at the end of chapter seven. 
Verse 17. It says, the flood continued for 40 days on the earth. The water increased and lifted up the ark so that it rose above the earth. The water surged and increased greatly on the earth and the ark floated on the surface of the water. Then the water surged even higher on the earth and all the high mountains under the whole sky were covered. The mountains were covered as the water surged above them more than 20 feet. Every creature perished. Those that crawl on the earth, birds, livestock, wildlife, and those that swarm on the earth, as well as all mankind. Everything with the breath of the spirit of life in its nostrils, everything on dry land died. He wiped out every living thing that was on the face of the earth, from mankind to livestock, to creatures that crawl, to the birds of the sky, and they were wiped off the earth. Do you see it? This is a horrible scene, but there's hope. Only Noah was left and those that were with him in the ark. So chapter seven ends and everything and everyone is dead except for those on the boat. And that truth shows us that yes, God hates sin, but God loves to save. God loves to save. Let me just ask you, like if you could get really honest right now, like if we could put a truth serum in you right now, does this story make you uncomfortable? Like does it bother you a little bit emotionally to know that God just completely annihilated everything with this flood? If it does, here's what I would say. Good. <laughs> it's supposed to, and you're in good company. In Genesis chapter six, the beginning, we actually see God's heart breaking. Look at verse five again, chapter six. When the Lord saw that human wickedness was widespread on the earth and that every inclination of the human mind was nothing but evil all the time. Stop right there. You would expect right there for everything just to end for him to snap his fingers, fire to fall from heaven, just everything to be ended in that moment. But instead what you see is verse six. And verse six is surprising. When God sees what is happening and what must be done, his heart breaks. It says he was deeply grieved Literally, the way that that translates is he was filled with pain. He's filled with pain. Not just sadness. Not just, not, not uncontrollable rage. Pain. That's what God felt in this moment is pain. The way that that word translates is it's the deepest possible pain that you can experience. Isaiah chapter 54, he uses the, that same word to talk about the feeling that a spouse feels whenever they are deserted, whenever their loved one just, just leaves. So literally in this moment, it's the deepest pain possible for God. It's the kind that just shatters your heart, the kind of pain when a loved one leaves you. See, at creation, God tied his heart to ours. He tied his heart to ours in the garden and we looked at him and said, we don't want you, we don't need you. 
and we turned away. That's Genesis chapter three, verse six. The fact that there's a Genesis chapter three, verse eight is amazing. Because just as, the, just as God spoke and everything came into be, he could have done the same thing and spoke and completely wiped everything out in that moment. But instead, you get Genesis chapter three, verse eight. Whenever God comes into the garden looking for Adam and Eve, you realize how amazing that is? That he comes and he pursues them. And then in Genesis chapter three, verse 21, you see the first death in the Bible, but guess what? It's not the death of Adam and Eve. God instead kills an animal, he sacrifices an animal so that he can clothe them with clothes and cover up their shame. This is beautiful. This is a picture of what God does for us. And in Genesis chapter six, when God looks and he says, I, I regret even making, like, look how bad it's gotten. He could have ended it all in that moment, but he didn't. Why? Because God loves to save. He loves to save. Like you gotta understand that the flood is not only judgment. It's salvation through judgment. Like what God is doing in the flood is he is judging sin, absolutely. But at the same time, he's saving the world. Verse 13 of chapter six could be translated this way. I'm gonna destroy their self-destroying. I'm gonna put an end to, to their self-harm. I'm gonna stop the destruction. I'm gonna save them from themselves. And how's he going to do it? He's going to use one man named Noah. And the question should be asked as you're reading that, like, why Noah? What did he do? And I know verse nine says that Noah was righteous. He was blameless among his contemporaries, that he walked with God. But listen, that doesn't mean that Noah was perfect. Noah was a sinful person just like me and just like you, right? He didn't deserve God to choose him. Nobody does. Again, if you keep reading in this story, you're going to see Noah is going to get off the boat. He's going to get naked, drunk, pass out in a garden. And sin is going to spread like wildfire from this point on. God, God knew that in this moment with this ark, he wasn't like resetting all of creation and sin wasn't gonna be a problem anymore. There are three things that got on the ark in that moment. Noah and his family, the animals, and sin. And God's not naive. He knew that they are sinful people that was gonna be carrying this on into the world. So the point of this story is not Noah was a good guy, you should be a good guy. That's what we call moralism. That's not the point of this story. The point of this story is that God redeems the broken. And this story points us to a bigger reality. It foreshadows the, rede the redemption that is to come that ultimately God is gonna provide through one blameless man. And that's the story of the Bible. God hates sin that sin has corrupted our world, thrown our world into chaos from the moment that it entered our world and every single person is affected by sin. We're born into it. If you've ever been around a toddler for about five minutes, you know we are born into sin, aren't we? And that's a problem because sin leads to death. Romans 6.23, the wages, the payment, the, what you're owed for the sin that you've racked up is death. But the equal reality to the, to the fact that God hates sin 
the, the tension point, the balancing act is that God loves to save. He loves to save. And Romans chapter five talks about how sin entered the world through one man being Adam. But redemption for all is accomplished through one blameless man. And he's not talking about Noah. He's talking about Jesus. See, the good news of the gospel is that Jesus endured the flood of God's wrath when he hung on a cross, when he was tortured, and he died. He endured the flood of God's wrath in that moment, and they killed him. He didn't deserve it. He was perfect. He was spotless. He was blameless, but they killed him for your sin and for mine. They placed him in a tomb. He came out of the tomb alive because he's God, and he can do that. And when he does, he offers us life or redemption. He offers us the chance to be saved. And just like how Noah and his family got on the ark and they were saved, every single person who enters into Jesus are protected and they're saved. It's a picture of the gospel. And maybe you're thinking, cool. Ancient story, I've heard it. What does it mean for me today? How does this apply to me today? I know that I don't have to worry about another flood because God promises that he's not gonna do another one and he gave us the rainbow as a sign. So I don't have to worry about all of that. So how does this actually apply to me today? One tip to reading your Bible is, is the stories from the Old Testament. You need to see if the New Testament authors write about them. The best commentator on the Bible is God, right? And so in the New Testament, both Peter and Jesus reference the flood. In Matthew chapter 24, Jesus compares Noah's flood to his second return to the day where he's gonna bust open the sky and come back and gather those who follow him. This is what Jesus says, Matthew chapter 24, verse 37. As the days of Noah were, so the coming of the Son of Man will be. For in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day Noah boarded the ark. They didn't know until the flood came and swept them all away. And this is the way the coming of the Son of Man will be. Then two men will be in the field, one will be taken and one left. Two women will be grinding grain with a handmill, one will be taken, one left. Therefore, listen, therefore, be alert, since you don't know what day your Lord is coming. Listen, you need to know that Jesus has promised it and he has said that he will return again. But he's not coming in the same way that he did the first time. He's not coming in as just a little baby born in a manger in Bethlehem, poor and lowly. He's coming, as the book of Revelation says, as a warrior king. And he's gonna return once and for all like a flood that's unexpected to completely wipe out sin and death forever. And in the same way, he's gonna come in and he's gonna flood this earth with his kingdom, restoring all of creation. You ever wonder why he put animals on the boat? God could have just made more animals. The animals represent the fact that, that Jesus' work is redeeming not only mankind, but all of his creation back to himself. And so he's gonna come and his kingdom will be established, restoring all of creation back to himself. 
But Jesus just said in Matthew 24 that his return is gonna be just like the flood of Noah. People aren't gonna be ready for it. They're not gonna be ready. Look, when Noah was building his ark, uh, they say it was about 120 years that he took to actually build this ark. So day after day after day after day, people had a chance to respond. People had a chance to turn from their wicked ways. People had a chance to repent and, and turn to the Lord, but they just didn't. And in the same way, people won't be ready today, but I need you to hear, if you don't know Jesus, if you're in your sin this morning, 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9 says that this period that you and I live in right now is a period of grace. It's a period of the ark being built. When you have a chance to respond to the Lord, confess your sin, turn from it, and turn to the Lord. Why? Because he loves to save. He loves to save. And so the message of Noah for us this morning, be ready. Jesus says, be ready alert. And so the question I have for you to wrestle with is when the flood comes, when Jesus returns, will you be found in your sin, which leads to destruction and death, or will you be found in the life-saving boat that is Jesus? It's just like the thing that I learned on the Cadron that day. It's much better to be in the boat than out. Thank you for listening to the preaching and teaching ministry of Second Baptist. We hope that we will see you in person this next Sunday. To find more information about service times, location, and ministry offerings, visit mysecond.family. Thank you for listening.